is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on the show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And they don't have to be big, change-the-world stories. And they don't have to be from big cities or small towns. They can be from anywhere. And by the way, it's small stories right in your neighborhood that change your world and thus change the world. And we love to tell stories periodically about our little town, Oxford, Mississippi. It's about an hour south of Memphis. It's where we broadcast this show. And this next story is the story of Colonel Bill Hollowell owner of Foxfire Ranch, a local farm that serves as a music and wedding venue about a half hour north of Oxford. My name is William Hollowell. I go by Bill, and I go by William sometime, too. I'm the owner of Foxfire Ranch. My parents were Albert Hollowell and Wilma Gwen Hollowell, and uh, they were born right here in Marshall County. In fact, uh, this part of the county, not even five to six miles from where we're sitting right now. My father was considerably older than my mother when they were married. He was 15, she was 23, but yet they raised six kids. I was about nine years old when he passed away at the age of 70. After my father passed away, my mother remarried another farmer who lived about 20 miles from here just west of Holly Springs in a community called Mariana. And uh, that was a 160-acre farm. And so I ended up growing up uh, partly here on this farm until I was nine, almost 10 years old. Then we moved to another farm with my stepfather. After uh, staying there for about four years, I left home at the age of 14 years old moved to Cleveland, Ohio, uh, left school in ninth grade, moved to Cleveland, Ohio to live with my older brother after I had an altercation with my stepfather, which led to a little bit of uh, gunplay, I guess is what you call it. We were all, had been working in the garden on a Saturday morning, like we normally do when you go into school, you know, you work the garden and you do the farm work on on Saturdays and go to church on Sunday, of course, but uh, there were three or four dogs on the porch. I guess I had been accumulating these, co- I told you about we liked coon hunting back in those days. So we had these coon hound puppies, and uh, maybe one or two or maybe a year old, they were hanging around on the porch. And my stepfather says, I'm going to shoot some of these damn dogs if they don't get off my porch. <laughs> I'm going to kill some of them. I'm going to kill all of them. I'm going to shoot some of them or something, he said like that. And I said, well, you just shoot yours. Don't mess with mine, you know. And I shouldn't have said that <laughs> because, see, that's, like, disrespectful back then. In those days, you say something like that. And uh, he went in the house and got the shotgun. And uh, I started catching the dogs and going around the outside of the house. And uh, after I was about halfway around the side of the house, he shot in the air over my head. So, you know, I don't know if he was going to shoot me or shoot the dogs or what, but uh, it was just in close proximity to me. I heard all the bullets, the BBs flying by, you know. I didn't get hit. But uh, that sort of was the way that 
whole thing went down and my mom got really upset and she cried a lot and said that I should go and live with my older brother. So I was 14 years old at the time and that's how that all happened. See, when we were growing up, it was a lot of, we loved to eat the raccoon because we, uh, that was in, we used the hide, we'd tack it up on the side of the barn and so forth. And uh, the more hides you got, that was a higher status symbol, you know. <laughs> but no, uh, you know, I've ate it boiled, fried, baked, barbecued. It's pretty good. Okay. A lot of people say it's a first cousin to the dog, though. So <laughs> it's getting close. During the time, though, I lived there in Holly Springs in the 160-acre land there with my stepfather. I learned a lot about farming about raising cattle, riding horses, and uh, slopping pigs, and and uh, slaughtering hogs, and all that kind of stuff. I learned a great deal. So I think when you grow up the way I did on a farm most of your early life, all of my early childhood life, you uh, develop a sort of a connection with the farm, with farming and farm things, and that's that's what brought that connection, brought me back here. One thing my mother insisted is that we attend a private school at the time when we, after we moved from here, and the school was St. Mary's, a Catholic school, ran by Franciscan nuns, wore the habit and everything. I guess they made a good, uh, big impact on my life uh, uh, because the education was probably the best that you could get around here at this time. Went to live with my older brother. He was maybe 21, 22 at the time. He was nine years older than I am. I guess for not he's about 23. And I started high school in Ohio. I ended up not adjusting very well to the high school there in the city and uh, ended up joining the Marine Corps, you know. So I had buddies that were doing the same thing. Vietnam, this was back around 67, 68. Vietnam was uh, really hot during that time. They were sending, you know, they were still drafting people. And uh, my brother was drafted. I get letters from him about life in the Army and so forth. He didn't immediately go to Vietnam. He was at Fort Hood. But then uh, a few of my friends joined the Navy. And uh, so I decided to go down to the recruiting station one day. Uh, I left school early that morning because I didn't want to be in school, didn't want to go to class, and uh, walked in and, there are these two Marines standing there, and they said, where are you going? I said, well, going down the hallway to join the Navy. Navy recruiter said, you ought to join the Marine Corps. The Marines are baddest. They're the baddest. That's my, my level of thinking was that, you know, I guess he was shooting at that. But anyway, I ended up joining the Marine Corps and uh, shipped out to Paris Island, South Carolina, on the 2nd of November, 1969. And you're listening to Colonel Bill Hollowell. And what a voice and what a story so far when we come back more of his story. A story from small town Southern America here on Our American Stories.
And we return to Our American Stories and to Colonel Bill Hollowell's story. And let's pick up where we last left off, the Vietnam War and the Marine Corps. Well, you know, when I first got there, uh, I had a big afro. <laughs> and uh, I heard this drill instructor over there pointing. He said, look at that And I said, what? And uh, I'm thinking, you know, I didn't have, that was probably the first time I've ever been called a And so they sent me straight to the barber chair, and he just ripped my fro off, you know. Basic training, I didn't have any problem in basic training, you know. See, I uh, was quite young. I was 17, and I went to Vietnam at 18, and I'd gotten back about 19. Tough experience, but I learned a lot. I made a lot of good friends. I learned to live with people, not my same uh, race. I learned how to get close to people that were... uh, from different parts of the United States. Uh, it taught me a lot about fellow human beings, I guess, and uh, you get close to these people, even some of the South Vietnamese people that we met and then along the way and interacted with the kids and so forth. You know, you uh, you get, it's a different experience. And that was probably one of the richest experiences is that, uh, you know, you learn how to be unselfish, I guess, uh, you learn how to do things for other people because your your life depends on it and his uh, his life depends on it. So you get very close to people, and uh, and that is a, a valuable thing in terms of a life lesson. I think you know, for me, it's been valuable because uh, it makes me realize that uh, you know we are all uh, connected somehow. I had gotten conditioned in the Marine Corps and everything, and uh, I didn't have a problem living in the barracks or at Camp Pendleton or anything like that. And I think I was fairly disciplined because I'd been to Vietnam. I was uh, 100% Marine then, and uh, I had, uh, you know, the Marine Corps meant everything to me and the people in the Marine Corps. And uh, I was thinking about re-enlisting, but... Uh, I didn't. I ended up getting out and going back to school, went to Ole Miss, went to college. And uh, as a matter of fact, I got into law enforcement. Uh, That's sort of my start in law enforcement. Before I left the Marine Corps, I went by the police department in Holly Springs, and I told the chief, you know, uh, I said, I'm getting out of the Marine Corps. I was looking for a job. And he said, well, when you getting out, I told him in November, he said, well, when you leave the, when you get out, come see me. And uh, this was now 1973. And uh, they had one black police officer in the whole city, on the whole department. So people started telling me, man, they're not going to hire you on that department and all that kind of stuff. And they told me how the, the department was messed up, it was racist and all this kind of thing. When I got out, I didn't go back by the department. But then they came looking for me the day next day or two. I've been out two or three days. So I guess the chief wrote it down that I was getting out and everything. Went by the police department and the chief, assistant chief, talked to me and everything. And I was on the department that same evening. And next day they took me to the uniform store, had me fitted for uniforms. It was only a 12-man department. And I was H-12, Holly Springs 12. And I was 12 full-time police officers. But anyway, 
I ended up getting on that department. I stayed there seven years, and I did, completed my degree uh, in uh, law enforcement at Ole Miss during that time. We only had a couple, I think it was one or two murders while I was on the police department that I went to and had to witness. It was a different experience because I was 21 years old, and uh, I tried not to make mistakes, but you, I remember going to work and counting the mistakes I made in one day, you know. You learn a, you earn a certain respect for people uh, on the street, being a little policeman in a small town even. You learn a lot about people and a lot about uh, attitudes and so forth. So I experienced the gamut of attitudes and people's, uh, their opinions from people and so forth. You know, the big opinion was they would say things like, uh, you can't re- arrest white people. You know, that's what a lot of black folks would tell me back in that day. You got that badge on and you ain't nothing and you can't even arrest white folks and all this kind of stuff, which wasn't the truth, you know. The chief was a really a good individual. Uh, you know, he taught me a lot about law enforcement and a lot about uh, trying to de-escalate situations when you walk into a domestic violence situation. He taught me a lot about, you know, the public says a lot of things about police officers. Sometimes it's not true. Sometimes it is, I guess. Of course it is in some cases, but uh, I decided that a career in the Army, a uh, military career, would be a little bit more lucrative than uh, enjoyable than a police career. I ended up getting a commission as a lieutenant in the United States Army. I switched over from Marine Corps to Army, and I got commissioned on the day I graduated. I served in Europe, uh, California, Georgia, Panama, Cuba. So I went a lot of places, did a lot of things. And 20, 20, uh, 24 years went by pretty fast. I guess Bill was about uh, nine years old when he moved into uh, the community that I was living in. We lived right across the road from each other. I met my wife at about the age of eight or nine. Nine, I think I was nine, nine years old. Yeah, we've been friends close to ever since. We've been married 48 years, but uh, we ended up getting married. I was 20, I think just getting ready to get out of the Marine Corps. And she was uh, 19. Her mother had signed for her to get married. <laughs> but, well, you know, back then it was different. People got married a lot younger. He came home one leave and uh, saw this beautiful young girl running down the road, <laughs> uh, jumping across the hill and all this good stuff. And so he decided, that's going to be my wife, okay? Oh, <laughs> that's the woman I want in my life, okay? And we kind of form a relationship and went from that. But she didn't tell you that they were sharecropping. Well, you, you don't have to know everything, Hollowell. <laughs> we were sharecroppers. And, and we were we owned our own farm, so mm-hmm. we were a higher status. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So he thought, okay, but anyway, uh, for some reason he wanted that little class girl, so he got me, okay? <laughs> we actually bought this farm in 1994 <clears throat> while we were still in the military. And, uh, we started thinking about retiring in 2000, you know, when you're in the military, you always think about life after, you know, that's not, you got to do something else one day. And uh, so we decided that we were going to come back here instead of, you know, you see all these cool places to live in California, Georgia, Northern Virginia. You see beautiful places in the United States that you know you'd like to live at, but we just chose to come back to Mississippi because uh, this was home and... This was a farm we started out on. It had a lot of memories. And so we 
started building that house in 2000. Mm -hmm. um, no, we built a cabin in 2000, built a house in 2002. Yeah, yeah, built a cabin. We had cattle here first. We had cows all walking around all over. This was a cow pasture. And so uh, we first built this thing, and we decided that uh, my daughter was in law school at Ole Miss, and she brought a bunch of kids out here, and they had a party. And that's how it sort of got started, this whole uh, events with Ole Miss Law School. And then we started doing other events, family reunions and so forth. And we just added, kept adding to this uh, place as we go. But uh, I wanted to do something a little bit recreational and uh, do something that was uh, related to music. Uh, <clears throat> and I'd heard about places like this out west, North Carolina, Tennessee even, where you've got a farm that does recreational stuff like reunions, parties, and so forth. Because people like coming out on a farm. They like seeing farm equipment. Uh, a lot of people got farm roots in their families from grandparents. We started doing events out here, and it sort of took off from that. We, we basically still have the same menu, okay? We started out with barbecue pulled pork, uh, and then we have fried chicken and uh, uh, barbecue chicken, and we have baked beans and coleslaw, catfish, turnip greens, cabbage, uh, black-eyed peas, potato pies, uh, potato salad, salad, you name it. We, we try to put it on Peach the menu. Cobbler. Peach cobbler for dessert and sometimes sweet potato pie and, you know, and chocolate cake and ice cream. Just a bunch of things. If I feel like cooking lasagna on a Sunday, we'll do that. Or dressing, we'll do that. So it all depends on the time of the year and what I feel like cooking. We call it, we're shaking and we're baking, okay? You know, the music's playing, we're shaking, and the food is baking. So the food is pretty good. People keep asking for more, and we just go ahead and just do what we have to do. Yeah, we enjoy it. We enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I think we enjoy serving people, having people come out here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's been, it's been good. And, yeah. uh, we the more the merry, you know. Keep it going, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And let's hope they'll be shaking and baking a long time. Colonel Bill Hollowell, his bride, his wife, Annie. Their story's here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to talk about music here on this show. Every kind, jazz, rock, blues, classical. And we hope you love it too. And we also love this day in history stories, always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. This one, well, it combines both. Because on this day in history, a man whose music you all know, and I mean you really know it, it's baked into the fabric of of the DNA of this country. On this day in history in 1854, this man was born. He was an American and a music man, and like music, existed in time, 
and that time was a long time ago. A time where no one thought to complain that baseball, the national game, was slow. It was a time when America dared to believe in itself. He gave it all his gifts. He was John Philip Sousa. It all began in the capital city of Washington, D.C., where John Philip Sousa was born the first son and the third child of ten children on November 6th, 1854. Sousa's father served in the Marine Band for nearly 25 years. If Thomas Jefferson established the Marine Band, it was John Philip Sousa who made it a musical organization of the first rank. Sousa's personal musical genius showed itself early. Sousa's teacher was incredibly demanding, and apparently no child psychologist. When the boy showed him his first composition, the teacher humiliated Sousa by hurling it away and announcing it as bread and cheese music. Sousa was eight years old. After suffering further indignities over the next two years, the boy finally one day almost used his fists on the teacher and declared that he was giving up music. Sousa's father, a wise man, said, all right, and got the boy a job in an all-night bakery while he continued regular school all day. After two nights, young Sousa was totally exhausted. The father then negotiated terms between his son and the music teacher and Sousa's musical gifts evolved in peace. When Sousa was 13, he secretly agreed to accept the offer of a circus band leader to leave home and travel with the Big Top Band. But Sousa's father, who had gotten wind of the plan, arranged something even more exciting to the youngster's imagination. The morning Sousa was to join the circus, his father brought him instead to the Marine Barracks and enlisted the boy in the Corps and the Marine Band. But by age 20, Sousa had given up the security of the Marine Corps and set out to make his own way in the world. In September 1880, the opportunity came that would lead Sousa to his distant place in the American Pantheon. He was invited to re-enlist and take over as the leader of the Marine Band. The band made its debut at the White House on New Year's Day, 1881. His great marches that would establish his renown forever were captivating the nation. Among them, the wonderful Washington Post March. He composed the great march inspired by, and named for, the Marine Corps model, Semper Fidelis, a Latin phrase that means, always faithful. Then an enterprising promoter named David Blakely convinced Sousa to leave the Marines and go on tour with his own Sousa band. Blakely assumed financial risk and guaranteed a salary of four times over what he had been making. The band succeeded beyond Blakely's wildest expectations and lasted for 39 years. He had an uncanny knack for pleasing and surprising audiences everywhere. His range was astonishing. He was presenting music from Richard Wagner ten years before it was performed at the Metropolitan Opera, and because he knew the people wanted it, added jazz to the repertoire as well. He didn't care much for jazz, calling it music that made you want to go home and bite your grandmother. Sousa insisted that his sopranos had to be gifted, but they also had to be pretty. His instrumental soloists were superb, but they also had to be crowd-pleasers. He drove himself to the point of physical exhaustion, 
and in later years, when everyone believed he had every right to slow down, he said, when you hear of Sousa retiring, you will hear of Sousa dead. Between the band's success and the royalties on his compositions, Sousa soon became a millionaire. In 1910 and 11, Sousa's band made a tour of the world, but a few years later the world itself was not so harmonious. When the United States entered World War I, Sousa immediately wanted to serve. He was by then 62 years old. Still, it was arranged for him to join the Navy as a lieutenant. To feel closer to these young men, Sousa shaved his iconic beard and joked, this caused Germany to sue for peace since it made the Kaiser realize that no nation willing to meet such sacrifices could be beaten. By the 20s, Sousa had become a national asset, an institution, his birthdays bordering on becoming national holidays. Here's Sousa on his 75th birthday. I don't know whether I'm worthy of such an honor, but I'm going to accept it just the same. It isn't everyone that can get a cake on his 75th birthday. Sousa worked tirelessly for the rights of professional musicians. He, along with Victor Herbert, had helped to gain copyright recognition for music used in piano rolls and phonograph recordings, and later on, radio. He coined the phrase canned music and was the founding member of ASCAP, the first organization to protect rights and collect royalties for composers, authors, and publishers from all uses of their music. On March 6, 1932, Sousa died unexpectedly in his room in the Abraham Lincoln Hotel from a heart attack. He was eight months short of his 78th birthday. He had been right about how the world would hear of his retirement. John Phillips was dead and is buried at Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C. The Marine Band commemorates Sousa's birthday every year with a ceremony at his grave. He wrote Taps, and with it, an anthem for America. He wrote it, he said, on shipboard one night standing by the railing, looking out over the ocean as he was returning from Europe to America, with divine inspiration, he said. It came to him, totally note for note, not one of which had to be changed when finally he set it down on paper. Fittingly, the last piece he conducted the night before he died, and probably the best words I can say, is the stars and stripes forever. John Philip Sousa, This Day in History. And what a story. 62 years old, and he wants to join the Navy. Wow. You talk about loving your country. This is why I hate it when people mock people who love their country like that. You can choose not to love your country, but don't make fun of people who do. And my goodness... Talk about stepping up. Also founder of ASCAP, the writer of this music that now is just classical American music. And all of it today brought to you by the folks at Hillsdale College. A great place to go to learn everything about American history, about life, about philosophy, about the arts. And of course, always sports. You'll play it if your child goes there, if you go there. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, if you went to college and never felt like you learned enough, if you didn't go to college and want to learn some more... Go to hillsdale.edu, that's hillsdale.edu, and check out their great online courses. The C.S. Lewis course is a must. 
in Economics 101, I just loved it. And my favorite, the Constitution 101, I learned more taking that class than I did in three years of law school at the University of Virginia about my own country. This is Our American Stories. continue with our American stories, and we continue with stories we've been telling for quite some time now with author Tim Harford, and his book is 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy, and we've been covering a whole bunch of them over several installments, and you can go to Our American Network to catch a bunch of them, and ultimately we're going to have about a dozen of them up on the air, and today we're talking about a particular company that everyone knows now. But we're talking about an innovation within that company, and we're talking about the iPhone. The iPhone has a very interesting lesson for us, I think. I mean, I don't need to tell you how it changed the economy. And, and, and of course, all the clones that came along, Google's um, Android phones as well. Um, I don't need to tell you how they changed the economy, but I think where they came from is a very interesting lesson. So th- this argument is made by an economist called Mariana Mazzucato. And she says, look, what is, what is in an iPhone? You've got a touchscreen. You've got the solid-state hard drive. You've, you've got the, um, the computer chips. You've got algorithms, particularly algorithms that convert digital to analog and analog to digital. You've got GPS. You've, you've got access to the Internet. You've got the cell phone structure. You've got all of that going on. Okay. These are the building blocks that Steve Jobs put together to make this amazing invention. So who invented the building blocks? And when you look at the history of it, very often they came from governments, um, very often the American government, very often the American military, although not always. For example, the touchscreen is a um, British government invention. It was, it was invented uh, at the Royal Radar Establishment. Um, so you look at all these different inventions, and, and they all have these these government or military origins, which is very striking um, because a lot of people, myself included, like to sing the praises of you know, private sector innovation, the power of the entrepreneur, the, the creativity of the free market. I'm, I'm all for that. I, I believe in that. But we also have to look at the facts. And in this particular fact, a lot of these building blocks came from governments. They were put together by brilliant entrepreneur, Steve Jobs, but he would not have had the raw material to work with. He would just have been making a clever toy if he hadn't had these different uh, inventions. Even Siri was designed originally for fighter pilots and eventually became repurposed for smartphones. So it's a lesson about how sometimes the, um, 
the origins of these amazing inventions that that shape the world around us, they're not always the origins we expect. They weren't always produced by the people who get most of the credit. You know, Tim, speaking of things that have their origins in the military, talk about radar. Well, yes, radar. Originally, the idea was a couple of British scientists during the Second World War, we're going to create a death ray. We're going to use electromagnetic radiation to create this beam that will heat eight pints of liquid, i.e. blood, um, above whatever, 105 degrees Fahrenheit, enough to make a pilot of a, of a plane pass out. And we're going to knock planes out of, the, out of the sky using our death ray. And the two scientists discussing this idea very quickly realized there's no way. We, we don't have the power. We don't have the range. It can't be done. But we could use electromagnetic waves to, um, to bounce off planes. And we could interrogate the signals that come back. And we could use that to track incoming planes. And this is a hugely important development uh, in the Second World War because it meant for, for Britain, as these German bombers came over high and fast attacking British cit- uh, cities, we could see them coming and we could scramble a response and we could actually intercept them. So, it, I mean, it changed the course of the Second World War and then various developments uh, that made radars uh, more powerful, more compact. You could put them in submarines. You could put them in aeroplanes. Um, you could use them all over the battlefield. Uh, a really, real um, war-winning effort. But on top of that, of course, once you've got that military technology, you've got a technology that makes civilian airspace a lot safer. And initially, those early civilian flights it was just a case of, well, you, you plot your course on the map and you fly from one airport to another and keep, keep away from clouds and hopefully you won't crash into another plane. And, and there was a tragic crash over the Grand Canyon, two, two planes both trying to give their passengers a view over the Grand Canyon. They hit each other, uh, terrible loss of life. And at that point, people started saying, you know what, we've got this technology, we could use it to track where all the planes are to run a kind of air, air traffic control system and to keep everyone safe. And ever since then, uh, air travel has been getting safer and safer and safer, famously safe, no matter how dangerous it may seem when, you, when you're up there in one of those, uh, those thin tubes. And it is partly because of radar. Indeed. And if I could, Tim, TV dinners has to be the way we close. Uh, okay. uh, inauspicious, but it's here and it's funny. It is funny. It was originally going to be the washing machine. You might be thinking, well, what's the connection between the TV dinner and the washing machine? Well, lots of people said, you have to do the washing machine because the the washing machine liberated housewives. Women who could be going out to work for money, getting economic independence, uh, getting experience at the workplace, fully contributing to society. And there they are, they're stuck at home doing the laundry. And I, I wanted to write that story. I thought it was a great story. But when I looked at the, the actual data, and I looked at the research that people had done, I found washing machines did not save women any time. What happened was, instead of doing you know, one wash a month, you'd do one wash a day. And um, we, we all looked a lot cleaner and smelt a lot cleaner, but it didn't actually save the housewives who unfortunately were the ones having to take responsibility for this, didn't save them any time. Um, The TV dinner, on the other hand, did. 
And by TV dinner, I mean not just the thing in an aluminium tray that you would warm up and sit there with your, you know, with it in your lap, but all of the other technologies by which food was industrialized. So the idea that rather than plucking your own chicken, the chicken's pre-plucked, and indeed maybe it's it's pre-seasoned and pre-stuffed. And actually, if you go to a deli, uh, maybe it's also pre-cooked. The other whole thing's ready to eat. So um, uh, crisps, uh, sorry, you guys, we call them crisps. You guys call them <laughs> potato chips. Yeah. You think about potato chips. Um, to prepare fresh potato chips, to finely slice all the potatoes and to heat up the hot oil and, and all the mess and the risk that that involves and to fry them... Huge, huge amount of time and effort. But you can buy potato chips in a bag. Uh, Take seconds. You can eat them anywhere. Um, uh, Pre-chopped salads. You don't need to chop your own salad. You don't need to wash your own lettuce. The salad's there in a bag. All of these different technologies, frozen meals, takeaway pizza, the whole lot. All of this save women an enormous amount of time. We we couldn't... we had the pre, before we had this technology, women had to prepare. And it always was the women had to prepare every meal, tidy up after every meal. They were literally spending hours every day putting food on the table, literally putting food on the table. And when the TV dinner and all these other technologies came along, that suddenly liberated women to go out into the workforce, to earn a living, to gain their independence if that's what they wanted to do in a way that. People say the washing machine did, but I'm afraid it never did. And I'll close with this. The industrialization of food freed women from hours of domestic chores, removing a large obstacle to their adopting serious professional careers. But by making empty calories ever more convenient, it also freed our waistlines to expand six decades after the launch of the TV dinner. The challenge now, as with so many inventions, is to enjoy the benefit without also suffering the cost. Talk about that, Tim. So many of these inventions are, have created things that we should be very grateful for, enormously grateful for. But many of them do have side effects, unintended consequences, disadvantages. And so there's always a temptation to say, oh, well, you know, we should never have invented that. We should never have that. If only we could turn the clock back. But we can never turn the clock back. We, we can't put the invention genie back in the bottle. So with all of these inventions, we're always asking ourselves, we should be asking ourselves, what can we do to enjoy, as I wrote in that passage, what can we do to enjoy the benefits um, without the costs? And sometimes that's a matter for, for government rules. Sometimes that's a matter for a community to get together and, and agree, well, this is, this is how we drive in this town. This is how we behave. And sometimes it's a matter for individuals. What am I going to do to make sure I don't waste too much time on my smartphone? What am I going to do to make sure I'm not tempted to snack and I, I don't, don't become obese and it harm my health and my self-esteem? Um, but we always need to be thinking about it. Um, technologies never just solve problems. They always create some problems as well. And so there's, there's always an opportunity for us to do better. And we've been listening to Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. And go to Amazon.com and pick this terrific book up. It's just chock full of stories, and they're short stories. You can read one and wait a few days, read another. They're not interconnected. They're not interrelated. But you get the story of modern life and the beginning of modern culture and the industrial world. And my goodness, all of these inventions indeed 
ones you'd never really think about. My goodness, the, the TV dinner I just would have never thought about as including in the list. And I couldn't stop reading the chapter. Again, Tim Harford, 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. And by the way, if there's a book out there that you think we should be covering that has a great story, and it doesn't have to be a new book, a book you've never read before is a new book. Send your suggestions to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll get on it. And we love talking to authors who can tell stories about stuff that we either didn't know or thought we knew. Tim Harford's stories, 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today, we have the story of Sam Kendricks. He's an Olympian and world champion pole vaulter, and he just so happens to be from right here in our small part of the world. Oxford, Mississippi. Faith brings us his story. Sam Kendricks is an Olympic medalist and world champion pole vaulter. Today, he's telling the story of how he went from a small town boy to a professional athlete. Sam and his twin brother Tom were born in California. Around the age of four or five, his dad moved them to Oxford, Mississippi, where his dad and now coach Scott Kendricks became a police officer. That's kind of that's where the whole story started when I started living on Highway 7 in the big white house um, with the horses behind. And I started the, this little adventure called the, the Kendricks Family in Oxford. Some, somehow my dad seemed to know everybody in Oxford and even though he'd only been here um, three or four years, he just kind of got plugged in everybody out in the country and whatnot. And so I grew up just following him around and uh, he eventually became teacher and a coach at the middle school and then high school and I never really had to go far out of Oxford to find what I needed and uh, being in being in a hometown kind of makes you either make some real stark choices early because you don't get you don't get to start over at all um, the people the people here know me from 10 years ago and I feel they, I'm the same person that I was. If I, if I screwed up five years back, everybody's going to know about it and I'm not going to be able to leave that unless I go somewhere else. So you really got to think about what kind of person you want to be early. And um, I decided I was going to be a, I was going to be an army officer. I was going to be a part of a team. I was going to be an athlete. I didn't actually have any aptitude for what I was doing until after <laughs> I had gone into college. And people, most people don't know that. They thought I had a lot of talent in high school, but I started out being a pole vaulter because I couldn't actually make my dad's track team. It was too competitive. Um, and, you know, an eighth grade boy that had a little bit of exercise-induced asthma um, when he was 13, even though he 
exercised every day riding horses and swimming in the summer. Um, just wasn't wasn't the most potential worthy when I started. And that's um, kind of my biggest advantage is that I didn't really have any talent. So I was a blank sheet. I didn't have any speed. I didn't have the hops. Couldn't dunk a basketball to save my life. Couldn't throw a spiral. It, you know, don't get me wrong. I, in elementary school, me and my brother were the biggest, strongest kids, and we dominated everything. But once, once, once it actually got important and it was high school, and I just wasn't the athlete. But something cool about an event that my father could help me with, which is the pole vault, is that he really had a love for track and field. And he didn't have the coach in high school. So he kind of wanted to be that for me. Pole vaulting because not many guys would do it in Mississippi because it didn't look like something that guys could learn quick between football season and track season. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an endeavor. It's a discipline that is, favors the athletes that can do it for the long haul. A decade it takes to make an elite pole vaulter. And you got to learn about your, a lot about yourself along the way because no matter how much you try, how hard the try you give this event, if you don't have the mentality or the focus to kind of back it up, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. The physics is going to beat you every time. Um, there's, there's, I can't pole vault harder to jump higher. And it, it, it doesn't matter how much want to you have. There's a lot of things you have to have in place to be a good jumper. So in high school, I won my first medal. You know, the coolest medal I ever thought I was going to win was when I was 13, and I won the bronze medal at the state track and field meet in Jackson, Mississippi, well, in Pearl, Mississippi. And that was when Oxford was 4A, and that was the most competitive division. I don't care. We had the most schools. We had the best athletes, more D1 people. I don't, I don't know the statistics. I'm making up stuff at this point. But, you know, bronze. Bronze was my, uh, bronze was my lucky color for about 10 years there. <laughs> I got two bronze medals my ninth and 10th grade year. Um, I jumped 12, 6, and then 13 feet 1 inches at the state meet. And those were honestly the most hard-fought medals I've ever had because that was the time where, you know, I was the smallest guy on the track. I mean, back then I did. I thought I, I, I hated when people. I absolutely, I had to sew my tights up on the inside because they wouldn't fit my legs. They fit like shorts. The whole track team switched to tights, like half tights, like you see uh, sprinters wearing in the Olympics, and they didn't have a size small enough for me, and my skinny legs. So my my dad he got out his sewing needle from his uh from his uh, OCS kit, and he started sewing up the inside of my tights to take up the slack so I could have some tights and be on the squad. And I was like, oh, okay. All right, I got me a real coach now. <laughs> nobody's, nobody's really going to go to bat for you like father will, though, so that's, that's a huge advantage. And um, made it. I jumped a personal best. I could jump 12 feet one week and then get six inches better by the next week. You know, the sky's the limit. But um, 12 feet six inches seemed like a real high bar. Back in 2008. But when Sam wasn't pole vaulting, he was often getting hurt. You know, they used to call me Stitch in high school. You know, you might have caught on to me telling you about my little shenanigans as a country boy when I was a kid. They used to call me Stitch because it seemed like every other week I'd show up in the emergency room needing stitches. Yeah, I was always getting something sewn up on me. And eventually it just got to the point where my dad would sew it up for me. And we'd, we'd keep on going with whatever I was doing. I'd fall off a horse. Uh, dang it, that's just, it's just bleeding a little too much. Here, come here, Sam. Let me stitch it up for you. 
Never went anywhere to get my stitches taken out. My dad would cut them out for me. So that, well, let's, let's count up on one hand all the things my pops does for me. He's my coach. He's, uh, he's my advisor. He's my, uh, my surgeon. He's my bodyguard when we go some places. So, you know, I got I a lot rolled into one. I'm really getting my money's worth a lot of the time. And you're listening to Sam Kendricks, and he is getting his money's worth with his dad. And a great father-son story, a great sports story. And by the way, for us here in Oxford, Mississippi, and that's where we broadcast from, about an hour south of the great city of Memphis, we're hearing and listening to one of our local heroes when we continue more of Sam Kendrick's story, a great local story, here on Our American Story. return to our american stories and we've been listening to the story of sam kendricks and his dad too a small town boy that is now a world champion athlete and olympic medalist in pole vaulting we left off with sam talking about how he earned the nickname stitch from how often he got hurt in high school um, when i was 17 before my senior season i actually had a really dramatic injury during the summer i i was at a function with rotc and just doing a drill in the woods that night, I was running through the woods. We were running probably with, you know, we had Kevlar, ACH on, an assault pack, 50 pounds of gear, more or less, with goggles on our legs and a blank mags. It was a training exercise for, for young cadets. But I ran into an obstacle during that exercise. And at that point, doing nothing related to track and field whatsoever, was really boogered up. I do one of the most dangerous things you can do in the world, sports-wise, pole vaulting. And not even pole vaulting, I really boogered myself up. I knocked out all four of my front teeth. I broke every bone from my eyelids to my, my chin. I split my shin open to the bone. I broke my knee and uh, dislocated my hip. Just from the force of my own running, all this track training made me fast enough to really booger myself up. And I woke up looking down at this thing this concrete barrier in front of me and I said those are my teeth and um I I remember very distinctly things slowed down a whole lot right there and I looked down and I said something's going wrong with my mouth and I reached up and I I, with my right hand I pull a tooth out of my mouth and I put it in my left hand it's okay I'm gonna need that and I like little chiclets on the ground I start picking up my teeth and putting them in my hand like this all four of them and I said wait a second I need to go somewhere and you're in shock at this moment and you're walking and I'm walking back to the the talk where all the cadre were the master sergeant is probably going to skin me alive with no teeth in my head that says Kendrick you're not allowed to get hurt and I was like oh man but I'm, uh, I need to, I need to go to the hospital but I, after about five steps I realized I couldn't walk and there's just a couple of my buddies from my squad were looking at me and they dumbfounded I said I can't look that bad and this is night outside I said, hey, hey, help me walk. Help me walk. I can't. I don't think I can walk. And uh, I looked down, and my ACH pants are just, ICU pants are just split. And I'm walking, and they're, they're helping me. I still got my pe- teeth clutched in my hand. I said, I'm going to need these later. I think I'm going to need these later. And uh, eventually, he helped me limp over to the tuck, and Master Sergeant looked at me. He says, 
well, Kendrick's, uh, he's going to have to get in my truck real quick. And he takes duct tape and he just starts taping up my leg. And I said, why are you taping up my leg, Master Sergeant? And he said, don't worry about it, Kendrick. He starts duct taping my leg. And he duct taped my leg from my ankle all the way up to my hip because apparently he could see something I couldn't see. And he he put me in his truck and, you know, like a champ, everybody else had gone back along with their exercise. I got in the truck. He must have drove 140 miles an hour down that highway from backwoods country, Mississippi, to whatever hospital we were going to, which is here in Oxford, actually. And I remember that call from my dad um, when he came from across town. And he, came, he walked in. He just had this smile on his face. I know I must have looked a wreck. I looked down at myself, and I got blood all over me and just still got my teeth clenched, clenched in my hand. I wasn't going to give those to anybody. I thought I was going to need them. And he says, hey, son, uh, you look all right. Let's get you in here. After I got pumped full of morphine and stapled up and set, I was finally able to go to sleep, and I woke up the next day, and I stayed in that recliner for about 30 days before I had the mobility to actually get up and walk on crutches. You know, a lot of cool things happened that time. I took up a lot of hobbies. I played cards. I uh, I learned a lot about computers. Um, but I didn't have any teeth in my head. They weren't able to put those teeth back in my head. I didn't think they should have either. They were turning kind of brown. But I'm kind of glad I didn't, I didn't have any teeth in my head. My knee was swelling up bigger and bigger. But by the grace of God, I got healed up. And a few staples in my knee taken out later and my shins. And my quadricep in my right leg retreating up my leg about four or five inches Still makes my toe stick out a little bit on the right side, but you wouldn't know now that I had a catastrophic injury that kept me from pole vaulting for almost six months back in back in those early days. But that being said, you really gotta re- gotta reallocate your efforts because I couldn't run for a long time after that. But boy, did I get strong doing pull ups! I couldn't even do one, couldn't even do one pull up um, before uh, before that. But I could do fifty by the time I was done with that, and I got real strong. And just had to find a different way to get strong, to keep my keep my brain together, keep those pieces together a little bit. Say, hey, I'm still actually going for, towards this goal as an athlete that I set myself on a long time ago. This is not going to take me all the way off of it, just a little bit. If I'm just a little bit off, I can get back on the track. And I went on to uh, win a national championship the next year, following um, after a long recovery and a bunch of surgeries later, and finally getting some pearly whites put back in my head. And the beginning it looks real bad. I mean, uh, oh, I need I need all my fingers and toes, and I can't and I can't even eat an apple. <laughs> but um, you, you you get to that sort of thing, and you got so much more mental toughness to accrue when you're when you're hurting at the end of a workout. Oh wait, I've I've lost teeth before. This ain't nothing. Uh, you know, you you've you're doing a a hard bit of rehab after a really hard workout, or you're in the field for a month and you haven't touched the pole. And uh, you're kind of hungry. You're a little bit underweight, and said, "No, no, no, no. I was. You should have seen how much skin and bones I was when I couldn't eat for a month. I must have dropped 20 pounds. Like, no, I'm good. I get back from this real easy. And you just keep turning all those negatives right back around into positive somehow. And uh, you kind of take that trend with you. You break a pole. Says, "No, I've had stitches before. It's all good. I'll heal up in a few, few, few days. I got 20,000 jumps to bank on in the past, and I can keep, I can keep motoring on." But, you know, you got good people to show you the way to do it. I didn't know how to do that before I had a coach in my face saying, come on, Kendricks, he'd tell me to walk when I didn't think I could walk. Yeah, I can walk. You can walk fine. <laughs> come on. It hurt, but, yeah, I could walk. But you, you 
you take somebody real close to you and knows you real well to kind of help you through those things or else they might just say, this is too hard. It's just too hard. Here's Scott Kendrick, Sam's father and coach, recounting the effects of this accident. It was a pivotal moment because, you know, we had to decide just how hard are we going to work at this because it's going to be twice as hard now with all the surgeries. And um, then when Sam went for his first day, remember he came to his first day of classes at Ole Miss with no teeth, and he tried to keep his mouth closed all day because he had broken his retainer with the four false teeth in it. And I took it to a dental um, prosthetic guy, or a lab guy, over in Tupelo and, and got it back for him, you know, that next day. But he came to Ole Miss the first day with no teeth as a freshman. And uh, it was a sad day. Very humble start, but he had to keep, he couldn't smile, had to keep his mouth closed because he didn't want to show... I'm missing all my teeth to his classmates. And then the next day we had had the thing, you know, stuck back in his mouth. And then um, it wasn't until quite a, a while later that he actually had what we consider his permanent teeth now. And people just assume that Sam has always had the best of the best of the best. And it's true, he hasn't. He hasn't. He has had a hard time the whole... He had his dad as a coach. You know, he had... Uh, as they say, trouble along the way. It was not a golden road at all. And he got beat by everybody, including the girls on the team, when he first got started. For two years, the girls on the team beat his brains out. But in between surgeries and through recovery, Sam continued to pole vault into his senior year of high school. That year, Sam won his first outdoor national championship. My crowning achievement in high school was jumping 5 meters 19, 17 feet. And um, I did that in my last home meet, personal best, in front of a hometown crowd of about 100. Boy, did it seem like a big day then. Um, my, my whole family was there. And the Ole Miss track and field staff and some of their most veteran athletes came out to watch me. And my goodness, did I feel like a superstar that day. And I had done my best in front of the people that I wanted to impress. But that kind of started me down the road of, oh, wow, I can really, I can really do something with this. Top, a top 10 jump in the nation? We never heard of that. We'd, our, biggest, our biggest bubble was the state. How can we do in the state of Mississippi? And I had won the state championship just after that. But one of the coolest things about growing in a sport is you get to see each perspective change. You know, when I was in middle school... I had to beat middle schoolers when you were in high school. Well, you get beat by a bunch of high schoolers before you learn how to beat a bunch of high schoolers. And when you go to college in the SEC and at Ole Miss, you're going to get beat a whole lot. And you have to come to terms with that is you're going to get beat a lot more than you're going to win. And you're listening to Sam Kendricks. And by the way, you heard from his dad before. And my goodness, his dad's right. He had a hard time all the way. A dad is a coach. He got beat by everyone. The girls beat him. As his dad put it, beat his brains out. But that jump of 17 feet in high school in front of a 100-person crowd changed his life. And the Ole Miss staff, the college staff, saw him. And the rest, well, you're going to hear the rest of the story, Sam Kendrick's story, a great local story from here in Oxford, Mississippi, here on Our American Stories. 
And we're back with Our American Stories and the story of Sam Kendricks. Sam is now a world champion athlete, but before we get there, well, he lost a lot. We pick up with his experience on the Ole Miss track team. Let's continue where we last left off. But when I was in college, I learned a whole lot about myself as a jumper, saying I can't, I can't hang with these guys playing their game. You know, in pole vaulting, there's, I'll give you a little bit of technical knowledge without going too deep, is that there are three things you can change. You can change how high you grip on a pole, you can change how fast you run, and you can change how stiff the pole is. Now, those all are very indicative of speed because leverage and physics and yada yada, just take my word for it. But I couldn't play the game because I couldn't grip high. I couldn't grip high at all. Every time I tried, I ended up in failure. And if you grip a higher pole, you're higher to the bar, closer to the bar that you're trying to jump. Does that make sense? And I couldn't do it. I, I just didn't have the speed. I didn't have the athletic ability. I didn't have the background of trying to do that in high school. And so I had to kind of create my own model. And something cool about that is when you jump in for a college team, you kind of have to perform to that team's standards. And Ole Miss gave me the great gift of not holding me to a national standard, saying, Sam, we don't need you to score right now. They gave me, they didn't, they didn't say, Sam, you have to perform to this level to have a spot on this team. And I said, okay, but I'm going to take that gift and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it back as best as I can. And so we kind of created our own model in the event. And you can do that when you have somebody that's on your squad. It's always going to be there, your papa. And we decided that we were going to be very excellent technicians in our event. We were going to make the most out of how high we were gripping. Um, we were going to say, we can sail high above our grip. Kind of defy physics a little bit and keep growing from there. And maybe increase grip a little bit. Back to my original point, is you get beat a whole lot? Yeah, I got beat a whole lot while I was trying to learn this. I, I scored one point in the SEC my freshman year in an indoor season. And then I actually took the silver medal at the SEC Championships. And outdoors. Um, that was my crowning achievement of that year. But then I quickly learned a little bit more about myself. I went to the national championship. Yeah, we're all about championships in track and field. We got them all the time. They're all a big deal. Um, I went to the national championship and I got my brains beat out. I was 10th. And you say, well, we got next year. And the next year, my sophomore year, I was uh, All-American indoors. And we learned a whole lot about what you can do you really stick to your own plan. And we went to the Texas Relays. Texas Relays. Big track and field competition in Austin, Texas. Longhorn Stadium. And I jumped 19 feet. 19 feet. This is a height that I didn't know anything about at the time, but a height that hadn't been jumped by a collegiate guy in 14 years. They hadn't seen a collegiate guy jump that high. And I jumped it. And I came away from that saying, but, but I'm not that good of a jumper. <laughs> uh, well, if you don't know anything about Texas, it's actually really, really good conditions to jump high. Texas, a lot of people go to Texas to kind of boost the bar up there, to leave it up there hanging. But I didn't touch again 19 feet for two more years. I said, I got to go fill in the gaps that the conditions gave me at the Texas Relays to really become a better jumper. And but that really starts me down the path of, where we are today of, okay, 
Sam, you've won everything there is to win in the NCAA. Go to the USA Championships after the year before, um, well, which I totally forgot about. Is After I won my first NCAA Championship, I went to the USA Championship and got my brains beat out. So the next time I came back and I won in 2014, and I won the SEC Championship, the NCAA Championship, and the USA Championship. And it turned out the best decision for me when I came back was to leave Ole Miss and become a professional. And that was one of the hardest decisions I ever had to make because I loved being a part of the Ole Miss team. My girl was part of the Ole Miss team. All my friends were a part of the Ole Miss team. And I, I, I really kind of gave my identity to being an Ole Miss rebel. Sam had won everything there was to win on the collegiate level. If he wanted to make pole vaulting more than just something he did in college, he had a big decision to make. One that his father brought to him. When, when I talked to Sam and tried to convince him to become a professional after his junior year, you know, he really initially did not want to do it. He thought about it for four or five days. And then he came around and, and he believed in me enough to say, you're right, we need to, we need to be competing against the best in the world for two whole years before the Olympics. One year before the Olympics is not enough. And that decision that day probably had more to do with him winning a medal than anything else. He could have stayed, he could have had glory, he could have you know, do, done all those sorts of things, but I don't think he could have gotten a medal. As a coach, I know you not, you're not gonna improve. If you're winning all the time, you've gotta take your lumps. And we weren't taking enough lumps. And uh, if we could possibly work it out with the Army, the army was um, was so uh, they were so cooperative because you know they said, "Oh, Sam wants to be a professional. Uh, it's not going to affect his army career." Yeah, go ahead. Sure, that sounds like a great idea. Sam's going to go to the Olympics. Perfect. The army loves it. You know, and um, I have a, a green book that I started taking notes in when Sam became a professional. And there are so many coaches who would love to read my green book because it is a, it's a, it's a compilation of all of the things that we learned between the time Sam was a junior in college and Nike signed him and the Olympics. And I, I closed the book after the Olympics, but all the things that, that, that people shared with us around the world, some of the best coaches in the world shared with us and we learned from them, and, and we learned so, so many amazing things that allow you to do well at that top level. And if you don't know those things, you're just not going to beat these guys. When Sam started his professional journey, he needed a lot of help and support from his family. And one of those family members was Sam's grandfather. Um, my grandfather, Sam Kendricks, has been a fan of mine for so many years. He's passed away now, but he kept a flag in his front yard that was just as high as how high I jumped in my career. So by the time he died, it was 19 feet, four and a half inches, which is pretty cool to see. Um, they told him every day he couldn't have a flagpole that high, but he said, screw him, in his front yard, in his neighborhood. But, you know, that's why I loved him so much. And he gave us the gift of a little bit of travel money that we could travel on. And because as a new, newly minted professional track and field athlete, you don't really get much help. You... Uh, I mean, winning NCAA and USA championships means very little because, once again, you have to jump into a new world, a new perspective, and say, okay, 
this is the final step you have to take. You have to be a professional now. You have to jump against the best in the world all the time. And what happens is you go, you get your brains beat out. But not as bad this time. I actually made a little money along the way. I made enough money to cover expenses and to get, climb my way up those rankings. And to the point where I was the best USA-ranked athlete, and then I was actually top 20, top 20 in the world as a pole vaulter. And that was a cool day to end the year and saying I was 16th on the list, I think, at the end of 2015. By the end of 2015, I went to the World Championships in Beijing, and I got my brains beat out, and I was ninth. <laughs> and, you know, I, I told myself after that that, my goodness, if, if history serves, I'm in a good spot right now. And Sam was in a good spot, and he took his dad's advice. And in the end, he's so right. You can't learn anything when you're winning all the time. And so he left Ole Miss, left his girlfriend and his friends behind at the end of his junior year, embarking on a true professional arc and a learning curve that will prepare him for Olympic competition. When we come back, the final segment of this remarkable story, Sam Kendrick's story, here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories in our final segment of Olympic medalist and pole vaulting world champion Sam Kendricks and his story we pick up with faith. In 2016, Sam was at the Olympics where his father was able to be there with him. And then when it came my turn to have my last words with Sam before he walked out, I always try for a big championship, I try to have something worthwhile to say. Because, you know, there's so much in an athlete's head as they're going out into a gigantic competition. And so um, I said, you know why they started the Olympics back up in 1896? A French baron started them back with his own money. And the reason they started them back up was for sportsmanship. And so the countries t- could get together and, and celebrate a competition where nobody got killed. No war. It's, not, it's a friendly competition between nations that people can celebrate and respect. And so the, the original motto of the Olympics is, it's not the winning, but the taking part. And so I said, you know, we have worked so hard for you to be at the Olympics. And most everybody here tonight will leave disappointed. Don't be disappointed because you are in the Olympics. No matter what else, when you walk out to tonight, you are in the Olympics and no one can ever take that honor away. You're an Olympian. And so go out there and have a great time. And things usually turn out well if you have a great time. You know, standing on the podium in Rio... 
was cool because it rained and it was fun and not many people stuck around. And I see Leanne trying to give me a kiss from the stands and I said, I can't get to you, but I'll see you as soon as I get home. And uh, doing all the managing victory with the eyes of America watching you, having a little video of myself go viral saying that I would stay in attention for the national anthem, which is something I didn't think was very special at all, but some, a lot of people messaged me and said, that's, that's pretty special, Sam. And I said, well, it's kind of one of those things you just do, right? But when you really stand on top of the podium and there's gold hanging around your neck and you say, well, all of this, all of these things, all these sacrifices you made in the past, all these people you brought with you, all those things you said no to, all those things you said yes to make a lot of sense. And you're really blessed to be there. And when there's 55,000 people screaming your name at the end of the competition, and when it's raining when you're on the podium and this star-spangled banner is playing, it's hard to just, it's really hard to describe. 2017 was an eventful year for Sam. Not only did he marry his wife, Leanne, he went undefeated in the pole vaulting season and then went on to break the six-meter barrier, an amazing accomplishment in pole vaulting. In professional athletics, we have things like clubs. We like to really, it's a kind of a barrier of sorts. Everybody knows about when Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. It was astounding. And once he did it, it changed people's thinking of the event, and then it led other men to be able to do it, by which beforehand, no one thought it was capable. Anybody was physically capable of doing that. They thought it was the limit of human effort to be able to run a mile in under four minutes. Great men had tried, and they were unable to do it before Roger Bannister, a doctor who only trained on his lunch break. But in the pole vault, my event, the barrier is six meters. It's very even. We love our even numbers in track and field. Four minutes, six meters. Um, I can count on three fingers how many times a guy jumped six meters but did not win a competition. He had to jump higher than six meters. That's absolutely astounding. But there's less than 20 men in history that have ever jumped six meters, and I was able to jump that at the Sacramento USA Outdoor Championships. If you can jump six meters at the point of a career, it says, you, hey, you've achieved. It doesn't matter how you did it. Doesn't matter how you did it. Nobody cares if you did it backwards. As long as you did it, you get credit for being one of the best in history. And because I did it a different way than was conventional, jumping on a pole that no one had ever jumped that height before on, um, gave me a little bit of extra credibility in my community as athletics and pole vaulters. I did jump six meters on a sixteen foot pole. It it that math was kind of a barrier in people's heads. They said, "We, you have to grip this high in order to jump this high because otherwise it's physically impossible. You know, the four-minute mile, you have to, it can't be done until somebody did it, right? So I was kind of the first guy to do that. Pole vaulting has long been the sport for the daring. What does it take to be a pole vaulter? There's this little switch you have to switch off in your brain to be a great pole vaulter to say, okay, my... My mere mortal brain tells me this is dangerous. I shouldn't commit fully to trusting my life to this piece of fiberglass and carbon fiber in my hands. I'm actually going to point my heels to the sky, put my head to the ground, and ride this thing into the atmosphere. you got to be able to do that or else you're not going to cut it. And that's kind of the, not necessarily the competition between me and the other competitors, but me and myself and me and physics to say, hey, I can overcome this barrier based on what I know and what I can do and what I've trained to do and let the chips fall where they may, I think I can beat you. 
I'm gonna leave the, I'm gonna leave the bar up there high. It's your turn to jump in next after me. And that's that's where my competition, not so much head to head, but me against the bar um, every time, and the me against you part that can come when the medals get decided, because um, that's that's the opportunity to be friends in the event. Because I'm not I'm not competing against you so so much. The guy next to me, I'm competing against that bar. And if you can't manage that bar, if you can't manage to get over it like I did, I deserve to win. How has Sam dealt with some of the pressure and doubts we all inevitably face? And to deal with the stress is to enjoy it. I, I thoroughly enjoy competing ever since I was a kid, you know. I was, but to be in the, in the game, to be among men playing this, playing this grand game called track and field, grown-ass dudes out there trying to jump over a pole, come on. It's got to be a little bit fun or else we're just doing something really nuts. <laughs> and this is an odd concept for most people, but can you actually fail over and over and over and they make you just fail over and get your brain speed out over and over and just keep going? Can you actually just do that? Can you just, you don't have to be a hero. Not at all. You don't have to be a hero at all to be a great tra- championship athlete. You just have to be able to stand up when everybody else is kind of falling down around you. And I learned that real quick. As in a championship situation, when really the money's on the table, can you actually just get back up on your feet and keep going? Um, nobody's expecting heroics out of you. It's not necessarily heroic for me to jump five meters 90 anymore. It's not heroic to put the ruck on my back and keep going 12 more miles. But if you can do that, if you can say, I failed so many times before, but it made me good. It made me real good. It made me so good that to the fact that sometimes you had to put that confidence away because you know you're good. You know you've got it in the bag when that bar goes up and that last jumper had his best height and he's winded at the back of the runway and said, he's no way in hell he's going to jump this. I got this in the bag. You come off that pit swing and you can't beat that. You can't beat that. But that's not the guy you can be all the time. You got to hold that back. You got to be the guy that gets knocked down. And you hear this all the time in the media. You got to be all knocked down, get knocked down, but get back, get back up again. But can you get knocked down a thousand times? They got this cool analogy in Navy SEAL training of the only way you can really get kicked out is if you go ring the bell. You go ring the bell. You have to acknowledge that you failed and you can't take any more. Um, and every athlete is going to have that crucible. I'm not by any means saying that I could be a Navy SEAL. Um, that, I think that path's covered up for me. There's a lot of aspects of that bell is hanging up there. You had the opportunity to just stay home and don't go to the championship. Don't let that stress be on yourself. You can let it all be done. You don't have to get on that plane. You don't have to get back into that boat. You don't have to get back in the sand or in the cold water. But if you do, you might make it. And that's kind of the cool thing about athletics. It's as much, you get as much out of it as what you put into it. After so many losses early on in his career, Sam now has accrued many victories. And in 2019, he won the world championships again and broke the American record, jumping 6.06 meters. It, it somehow gets easier. <laughs> and it's, it's hard to say. It's like, oh yeah, it should be the hardest when you're at the top. No, it's actually the easiest. Can you believe that? And it's actually the easiest when you get to jump in London and everybody wants to help you with your medical and get you in cold baths and drive you to the meet and take care, help you take care of your poles. I, didn't need, I don't need all this help now. I needed it two years ago. I needed all this help two years ago. Uh, you don't need it now. But uh, I got all the help I want now, which is great. Can't do it alone. 
I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Faith. And what a voice and what a lesson to be learned by someone that young to anybody who's ever faced any adversity, anyone trying to do something tough. What humility and yet what confidence at the same time. And my goodness, you know, all these things you said no to and yes to. Well, it was hard to describe how we felt getting that gold medal standing on that stand in Rio. But my goodness, he said no to a lot, including graduating with all of his friends at Ole Miss. That had to be really hard. But in the end, he met and married the girl he loved, right? Uh, He didn't lose her. He didn't lose his friends. He just had to step out into something unknown and lose a lot more. And that's tough. And he said it best. It's me and myself, not me against my competitor. It's me and physics. And it's me against the bar. And again, if you live your life that way, set a bar and go after the bar. Forget the other people and forget what they think of you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So much wisdom here from this young man. Again, a local hero here in Oxford, Mississippi. And you've got them all over this great country, men and women, setting a high bar and going for it. And sometimes hitting it, sometimes not. But it's the process of going for the bar that makes you who you are anyway. Sam Kendrick's story, here on Our American Stories.